Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Would you stand, wave across the room at somebody? Let them know you're glad they're here. Ready to worship this morning.
deserve the glory for from you are all things and to you are all things you deserve the glory King of kings 
this morning and adore the presence of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Jesus, we adore you, we adore you, we adore your presence. Oh, sing this out. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. With all creation I sing praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything and I will adore you.
to God. We love you, Lord. We worship you. We magnify your name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you, Lord. Glory to Jesus. Glory to Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So we are this standing there worshiping. Just these words came to my heart. These are the days of glory, and these are also the days of choice. What will you choose? What is your choice? Hallelujah. Will you choose to walk in love or you choose to walk in offense? The Bible says, choose you this day whom you will serve. These are the days of choice. Hallelujah. Will you choose to be faithful or will you choose to fall away? Will you choose the word of God in faith or will you cower in fear? Hallelujah. These are the days to stand. We can choose to stand. We can choose to be strong in the Lord. Or we can sink in fear. Hallelujah. But because they're days of glory. And then I remembered this scripture. Holy, I've shared it before, but I just felt to do it again today. This is many years ago. My goodness. Over 30 years ago, we were in a, a Sunday morning service. The presence of God was just precious like it is today. And uh, we had been praying a lot as a church for the glory of God, for the glory of God, you know, for us to just walk in the glory of God. And, you know, when we think about those things, we picture it to be a certain thing. You know, oh, it's just going to be, everything's going to be wonderful and everything's going to be easy. And that's what we want. We want the glory of God. We want life to be easy and just, you know, all of that. And uh, so that's, at least that was my interpretation of it. I'm sure none of you would think that. And so then it was a Sunday morning and there was a tongues and interpretation. And in that, this scripture came out. And it helped me to see that not just, uh, uh, there are, this isn't the only thing that's a glory of God, obviously. But it helped me to see what the glory of God is. It helped me to see what the strength of the church is. You know, the persecuted church around the world, they're a glorious church. In other countries where they ha are persecuted for their faith, they are a glorious church because they're remaining faithful to Jesus. And they're not denying their faith. They're being, they're being faithful to God in the midst of difficulty and in the midst of persecution. And of course, the American church doesn't want to hear squat about that, you know. No, no, no. But anyway... Okay, so this is found in 1 Peter chapter 4, and starting at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, and this is happening more in our nation, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I think we just skim over that verse. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Oh, don't meddle in other people's affairs. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Hallelujah. So if you're going through a difficult spot, if you're facing uh, a challenge at work, if you're facing a challenge in your life in some way, people are giving you a hard time. You know, I hear about it all the time. You know how people are now experiencing more opposition and more persecution. We need to rejoice. Hallelujah. Because the Bible says that the spirit of glory is upon us in times like that. Hallelujah. So Lord, we thank you. And we praise you. Hallelujah. We are the glorious church. And we're grateful. We're thankful for your presence. We're grateful. We thank you for your word. We stand strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Hallelujah. We rejoice in the face of opposition. We rejoice in the face of persecution. We rejoice in the face of difficulty because we know that you, you always cause us to abound. You always cause us to triumph. Hallelujah. 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 We will not be moved. We will not be shaken. Hallelujah. But remain steadfast and faithful unto you, O Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Drawing ever nearer to Jesus. Drawing ever nearer to him. Drawing ever nearer to his words. Speak your words to our hearts this day, O oh Lord. Strengthen our church family. Strengthen our families spiritually, Lord. They are strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Unite our hearts. The spirit of unity in the bond of peace like never before. We declare the blessing of God, the love of God, and the glory of God in the homes of those, our church family and of our families, Lord. In Jesus' precious name. And if you can agree with that, say amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, we're going to dismiss the children to their class at this time. And then uh, before you're seated, if you want to uh, greet several people that are around you, perhaps introduce yourself to them. Praise the Lord. Thank you to those of you who are worshiping with us today on Facebook and YouTube. We're so glad that you're here. And we believe presence of God and the word of God will minister to you right where you are. Amen. Praise the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Amen. 
We just have a few announcements for you uh, this morning. Uh, ladies, this Tuesday night at 7 o'clock here at the church, we'll have our monthly Bible study. We have been looking at the book of Kenneth Hagin's and going through that book, Tongues Beyond the Upper Room. Uh, we will have beautiful food, charcuterie, uh, tray, and we have wonderful fellowship. And at the end, we have been having really precious times of prayer together. It's been an unexpected extra for us. Just really have enjoyed those times of prayer together. So join us. Be sure to join us. Um, then also, next Sunday night is our fall festival. We are calling it this year a family fall festival. And as you entered today, you should have gotten a little card like this. And we want to encourage you to invite a family member, a neighbor. This isn't just for children. We have... Um, we have things that adults can do, that adults can watch. We're going to have a hot dog bar. Feel free to bring a side dish. There will be lots of candy here for dessert. And um, we're going to have games and numerous things for the children to enjoy and for us to watch. And so um, uh, be sure to in invite a friend to that and uh, join us at from 5 o'clock to 7 o'clock next Sunday night. And then we want to remind you that the elections are coming up, um, I believe November the 6th, on Tuesday, I think it is. And I want to encourage you, we mentioned this last Sunday, but in case you weren't here, we have some flyers, not very many left. It's on Prop 1. And uh, many people do not really know about Prop 1. Uh, we encourage you to get information on it. It is a language that is unclear, and therefore, because of it's on purpose, and because it's unclear, it will allow for uh, late-term abortion. And um, the, the ladies at the table can give you all kinds of information about that, and you're supposed to go to a website, but I don't think it's on here. Uh, prop, can somebody shout it out to me? No on Prop 1. Uh, just Google it, and you'll find the website. Anyway, it will give you information there. You can take the uh, flyers. We encourage you to just let other people know what's going on because most people don't really understand what, what it is that's happening. And even in our um, local uh, races, Mission Viejo is one of them, uh, there's a lot of um, things going on that... Um, you know, there's just a lot of deception happening these days. And so even in our cities here in South County, there's a lot of movement going on as far as people trying to get in some wicked, ungodly agendas into our towns. And so that's the general, but the ladies at the table can talk to you about that and explain what's going on, how you can help get the word out and get more involved. We encourage you um, to do that as well as to vote. People really uh, need to be educated on that. Um, and then, let's see. Oh, yes, our Thanksgiving feast is coming up in a few weeks, Sunday, uh, uh, <laughs> November the 13th, after the morning. You know, I work on a calendar, Georgine, and I sometimes don't even remember what month it is because I'm looking ahead, right? And I'll go, oh, we're only in October? Oh, gee, I thought, you know. Anyway, join us for that if you have not. Uh, the church will be providing uh, the meat for it. Uh, we're, we're scoping out turkeys already, but every time we go so far, 
So you know what? We're very we're flexible, but we still believe God for turkeys. But um, anyway, turkey and ham. We are not going to force vegetarianism on anyone who doesn't want it. So we're going to have the meat, okay? And so we ask you to bring a side dish if you wouldn't. You don't have to sign up for a side dish, but if you could let us know what you're bringing back at the table in the rear, then we can, uh, everyone can kind of plan a little bit to make sure it's, it's evened out. So join us that day. It's always a wonderful time. And then lastly, um, uh, we're doing uh, shoe boxes with uh, uh, Samaritan's Purse and Franklin Graham's Ministry again this year. Um, there's uh, boxes back at the table. You can pick them up and fill it for a child. Um, I believe there's a video on it that is going to give you, I think everybody knows about it, um, so I don't need to say too much, but um, they have a video that they're going to show, I believe, I didn't double check on that, and uh, it's just good to see what they're doing, it's a real blessing. So if that's the case, and I'm right about that, you can go ahead and roll that video. If you're like me, it can be difficult to know where to start. To make things easier, just start with a box. Any average size cardboard or plastic box will work, but I find a shoebox works best. After that, you'll need to decide what age group you're going to pack for, and if it's for a boy or a girl. Now let's fill that shoebox. It's best to start by selecting a wow item, something like a soccer ball and a pump, or a stuffed animal, something really special. <laughs> Yes, and yes. Once you've got your wow item, you can start to fill it with other fun stuff like toys, clothes, sandals, or even school supplies. <laughs> what do you mean, however? However, there are some things you don't want to include. Things like gum, toothpaste, items related to war, liquids. But for a complete list, check out the website. Oh boy, I think they're gonna like this. While a shoebox might seem small and simple, it can mean the world to a child who may have never received a gift. It shows God's love in a tangible way to children in need, and together with the local church worldwide, shares the good news of Jesus Christ. This is why you will also want to personalize your shoebox. Even including a letter or a photo of your family or yourself can make it extra special to the child. The most powerful thing you can do is pray. Pray that your gift will make an impact. That both the child and the community will discover the love and name of Jesus. When your box is finished, you can make your $10 donation online or by mailing in your contribution using the business reply envelope in the brochure. This donation is critical for training and equipping local churches to share the gospel, along with the collection, processing, and shipping of the shoebox gifts. And don't forget to activate a label so you can follow your box and discover its final destination. Finally, make sure to check the website for the closest drop-off location near you. And make sure to mark the date for the third week in November as National Collection Week. Well, there you go. You just packed yourself a shoebox. <laughs> Grandma. Already done. What? How? I thought she wasn't going to stores right now. She isn't. She packed her box online. That's right, Dad. With just a few clicks of a mouse, Grandma packed her whole shoebox online. 
She can choose from all kinds of gifts, even make it personal by adding a letter and a photo. Wow, so she doesn't even need to leave the house. Nope, she can stay safe inside and still have time for Doomcraft. <laughs> That's new this year. You could give them money, you know, and they would pack it, but now you get to do pack it online and still play video games. I don't know. Now that I'm a grandmother, that looks pretty appealing. <laughs> Amen. We, we, we thank God for that ministry. Thank God. Amen. Well, we're going to give you an opportunity to give this morning. You can find offering envelopes around you, and if you need one, you can go ahead and raise your hand, and the men can uh, assist you, and we're going to pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you that you're El Shaddai, the God who is more than enough. Hallelujah. And so we thank you, Father, for more than enough for the families of our church, our families. You supply all of our needs and you make us a blessing, O Lord, to others. We live to give. We bring to you our tithes. We bring to you our offerings as worship unto you, Lord. We thank you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Family, after you've had the chance to give, would you stand and worship with us again this morning?
Bless you, Lord Jesus. We magnify your holy name. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's make our confession. You guys throw that up on the slide for us. This is our year of Jubilee. Now let's say it together. This is our year of Jubilee. We expect manifestations of the Holy Ghost and power. We believe for financial miracles and miracles of healing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's start in Romans chapter 5. You know, the Bible tells us, explains to us, how that God operates on one man. I hate to say the word theory. But it tells us about Adam's sin that brings death upon the whole world. And that happened thousands of years before you and I were born. But in the same way that it talks about Adam's sin bringing death upon mankind, it tells us about Jesus' substitutionary work that provides life. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man... Sin entered the world, into the world, 
and death by sin. And so death has passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now the death he's talking about there is spiritual death. Spiritual death, which can be defined by separation from God. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now skip down with me to verse 17. For if by one man's offense, again he's still talking about Adam, if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. So he's saying that Jesus paid the price to undo the work that came about upon us, came upon us by Adam's transgression. Spiritual death is the condition of all of mankind apart from Jesus. Notice that it says also in verse 17 that we made mention of, it talks about Jesus overcoming the spiritual death through his substitutionary work, his sacrifice on our behalf. And that sacrifice not only provides for us eternal life, but a benefit in this life. There's so much of the church world that looks at or understands eternal life only to being attendance in heaven. But the eternal life that Jesus came to provide for us is intended successfully, but is intended to provide us authority, health, provision, and all of the benefits, the blessings of Abraham to reign while we're still here on the earth. So much of the church world is waiting for eternal life to benefit them only when they die. But Jesus came so that we could live in victory. Jesus came so that we could live in abundance. Jesus came so that we could live in health. Now turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 53, please. Isaiah chapter 53, I'll start in verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? In other words, to whom is the power of God manifested? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. It's talking about Jesus. He has no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now this is talking about Jesus on the cross. It talks about how his visage was changed to such a degree that he didn't look human when the sin of all mankind was laid upon him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This word sorrows is the word pain. This word grief is the word sickness. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of pains and acquainted with sickness. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely 
He has borne our griefs. Here's the word sickness again. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now notice the words in verse 4, notice the words born and carried. Those are two Levitical terms. And both words have a similar meaning. There's a little bit of difference between the two, but that's not our subject this morning. But it means to lift a heavy burden and to transport it away. It's talking about a carrying away once and for all. It's talking about a removal of a burden, a great burden or a great weight. It's used and spoken of, written about, concerning the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, where the sins of Israel were placed symbolically on the scapegoat by the high priest. And then the scapegoat was led out into the wilderness where destruction fell upon him, whether by predatory animals or starvation or whatever. This Day of Atonement work of the scapegoat was it took place every year. But thank God Jesus did it once and for all. Surely he has borne our griefs or sickness and carried our pains. Now, it's amazing when you think about it, there's hardly anything else in the world that has more opposition identified in so many different ways as healing, the healing work of Jesus provided for us through the cross. You've got the translators, the King James translators, that take these same words that are translated griefs and, and uh, sorrows and they translate them sickness and pains in other places. But when they come to the place where they know that it's talking about Jesus' substitutionary work, a finished work, a one-time work, they take the, the word that means sickness and they translate it into grief. I wonder how many people through the years have been misled by the mistranslation of these words. I wonder how many people have been robbed of the blessing of God, whether it might be by not having adequate teaching or some other reason, but they missed out on God's best because translators were not faithful to convey the meaning that it was intended to mean. Now, I don't mean by that that they were evil in their intent. I'm not in a position to make that claim. I would assume that they translated according to their own understanding. And a translation is only as good as the knowledge of the translators concerning the language itself and the character and the nature of God that they understand. But you've had thousands of years of people preaching argumentatively about healing for the physical body, being included in the work that Jesus accomplished. But God knew that ahead of time. 
And God provided a, a New Testament commentary to reveal the truth of the healing work of Jesus. Notice again, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, our sickness, and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Here's the New Testament commentary on that verse. Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now, folks, notice that it says that Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. There may be a, a, a good deal of misunderstanding about that concerning the fulfillment of something because the fulfillment means the finishing of something, the bringing to an end or a conclusion. Well, the things that the Isaiah 53 is telling us about in the verse that this commentary refers to was accomplished only by the work of Jesus on the cross. So then if something was fulfilled before Jesus went to the cross, how does that fit? Well, if we know that Jesus' work on the cross is what was being referred to in Isaiah 53, and we certainly do, then let's look at what fulfillment there could be that took place. Verse 16 again, when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word. Is that part of Isaiah 53's prophecy? That can't be it. And healed all that were sick, again, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. It tells us specifically that Isaiah is talking about sickness and disease griefs and sorrows, which is accurately translated sickness and pain. It's not saying that healing was fulfilled when Jesus was here on the earth, so there's no healing available to us now. Rather, it's saying that the only way that Isaiah's prophecy could be fulfilled while Jesus was here on the earth, meaning before he goes to the cross, is for healing to belong to everyone. See, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is that all were healed. He healed all that were sick. He healed all that were sick. That's the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. That's the bringing to light the reality of what Jesus would accomplish on the cross. Just as Jesus healed all that were sick here on the earth, then the finished work of Jesus on the cross as our substitute is available for us all. He was wounded for our transgressions, not his. He didn't have any. He was wounded for our iniquities. He didn't have any iniquities. What he did was for us. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. 
and with his stripes we are healed. Everything about God, everything that God revealed himself in the Old Testament to Israel to be had to do with the substitutionary work of Jesus. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, God identifies himself to Israel in a, in a way that they did not know of him. God appeared to Abraham, but then hundreds of years went by with Israel in bondage in Egypt and to the Egyptians. And when God intervened and spoke to Moses, Moses didn't know who he was, and so he knew that the people wouldn't know who he was. God honored his promise to Abraham, his covenant promise to Abraham, and appeared to a people that didn't know him. Well, how are they going to get to know him? The ten plagues tell us about the judgment that God brought upon the gods of Egypt. And through those displays of his power, Israel found, or at least was intended to find, that God's power reigned supreme. Finally, the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. And so God instituted the Passover, whereby they took the animal's blood and put it over the doorposts and the doorframe of their homes. And God displayed his power over physical death. Do you remember the story how that Pharaoh let people let the children of Israel go after that? But then shortly thereafter, he changed his mind and decided that he would attack them. And because Egypt was the, the great superpower of the world at that time, the strongest military force known to man at that particular time came bearing down on the children of Israel. God delivered them by the separation of the Red Sea, the parting of the waters. And Israel rejoiced in their victory when Pharaoh's army was destroyed when the waters came back together and drowned them all. They come to a place after a few days, after three days of wandering in the wilderness I'll start reading in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they were three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. There's some discrepancy over whether that means it was just um, unpleasant versus poisonous. And the, words that's used, the word that's used here could mean either one, so we don't know exactly which one's. It means. But at any rate, they couldn't drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter, and therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? 
And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he, he, he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Now, the tree is a reference to the, uh, a symbol of the cross of Jesus. And there he made for them a statute and an ordinance. And there he proved them. A statute and an ordinance is an unchanging law. So there he made for them an unchanging law, and there he proved them, and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which have come upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. He's not only talking about the fact that he would provide provision and healing, as he has done in this case, by, by instructing Moses to cast the tree, specific tree into the waters. But he could also be referring to the Passover, which has taken place just several days before this point in time. The Passover, which was, as we mentioned, the instruction to put the blood of the animal on the doorpost and the, the lentils. But then also the, the instruction was for each household to roast the lamb and to eat the lamb for the strength of their journey is the way the scripture says. The Bible tells us in the book of Psalms that he brought them forth with silver and gold and there was not one feeble among them. Here's a group of millions of people. We can argue about how, how many millions there were. Most estimates are between two and seven. So if you wanted to take the most conservative position and say that there were two million people, there's two million people that left Israel or left Egypt heading for the promised land and not a one of them was sick. Not a one of them was sick. Now the Bible tells us in Second Chronicles that Ezekiah, after years of disobedience by the children of Israel, when Hezekiah was made king, he tried to reinstitute worship of God and do away with idol worship and so forth. And when he reinstituted the Passover meal, the Bible says that God healed all the children of Israel. Hezekiah enforced or put back into force the keeping of the Passover. And the first time that it took place, as it was reinstituted, that is, it tells us that God healed the people. Well, Jesus is a type, or the Passover is a type of Jesus, we should say. It's a type of Jesus on the cross. It's a type of the sacrifice, just as the, the lamb was sacrificed for each household for the Passover to be kept. Jesus, according to Paul, was our Passover sacrifice for us. There are seven times in the Old Testament that God identifies himself to the children of Israel. In other words, there are seven different scriptural names 
that he called himself. Some of them we're very familiar with. For example, Psalm 23 tells us about the Lord as our shepherd. That's one of them. He identifies himself as our shepherd. He identifies himself as our righteousness. He identifies himself as our peace. He identifies himself as our provider. And I'm leaving some of them out. I don't remember which ones those were. But the point is, there were seven different names that he gave himself, that he named himself to the children of Israel for the specific purpose of them understanding his character and his nature. And therefore, they would, as a result, they would know his acts, the actions that he would take. The first one that he identifies himself as is the Lord our healer. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer. Put yourself in God's position for a moment. If you're trying to identify yourself to the children of Israel, and I doubt very seriously if any of us would have had the patience that God had in walking with and continuing to bless the children of Israel in every possible opportunity. But if you're wanting to identify yourself to a people that do not know you, to a people that don't worship you, to a people that are completely ignorant concerning the existence of God, certainly the actions of God, how would you identify yourself? First way God chose was to identify himself as the healer of his people. It's very likely, certainly possible, but in my opinion, very likely that where he is saying, I am the Lord that healeth thee, he's not only saying, I'm the Lord that you can trust for healing, but I am the Lord that did heal you through the Passover. I can't think of any other possible way that he could have brought them forth with silver and gold and not one feeble among them other than healing them through the Passover meal. We know that he did that through Hezekiah or in Hezekiah's time. So that would indicate to us, again, the possibility, the certain possibility, and in my opinion, the probable likelihood that that's what he's referring to. And he made a statute and an ordinance. Don't forget that that means an unchanging law. If you will hearken diligently, if you will hearken diligently, if you will listen diligently, I think that word diligent would include putting the word of God first place. You will hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God and will do that which is right in his sight. In other words, being a doer of the word and not a hearer only. To keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for because I am the Lord that healeth thee. We serve a healing God. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Beginning in verse 27, And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying, saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come to the house that the blind, when he was come into the house, 
the blind men came to him, and Jesus said unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? And they said, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. Notice he said, he questioned them. He asked them a question, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they responded, yes, Lord, we do believe that you're able to do this. Then Jesus said, according to your faith, be it unto you. There are numerous times throughout the scriptures, throughout the four gospels, that the Bible identifies the faith of the individual in their receiving of healing. There are 19 individual cases of healing, instances of healing in the four Gospels. Many of the Gospel writers refer to the same one, so it seems like there's more than that. But if you divide them out and take them separately, identify them separately, there are 19 individual cases of healing in Jesus' ministry. And we know that there must be more than that because John said that if everything Jesus said and, writ was, and did was written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. Well, then that means we don't have a record of everything Jesus said. And we don't have a record of everything that Jesus did. And seeing as how healing was at the forefront of Jesus' ministry, then it seems to me that there are a lot of times where Jesus healed people. There are a lot of people that were healed under Jesus' ministry that we don't have record of. But we have to assume that we have an accurate and a complete record of the healing ministry of Jesus through the 19 cases or instances of healings that we do have record of. In other words, I would have to assume that the other cases of healing that were not written would just reinforce the same principles or truths that the, the, the 19 individual instances we have tell us. I hope I made that clear. I understood what I was trying to say, but I'm not sure how it came out. So of these 19 individual cases of healing in Jesus' ministry, 75% of them refer to the individual's faith. In some way or another, whether it's spoken of or identified through their actions, their faith is, the faith of the individual is identified. There were places where Jesus could not get any supernatural results because of their unbelief. Luke chapter 4 and Mark chapter 6 tells us about Jesus in his own hometown of Nazareth. Mark 6 verse 5, it says, and he could there do no mighty work. It doesn't say he wouldn't, it says he couldn't. And if you look that word up, it means wouldn't, or it means couldn't, not wouldn't. He was unable, he was powerless to do any mighty work of healing in that place. Now, folks, if you understand this principle, you can understand a lot about God, and it'll take you a long way in, in getting acquainted with him. The Bible says Jesus had the Spirit of God without measure. That means there is no divine power that was withheld from Jesus in his earthly ministry. Yet, in Nazareth, he could there do no mighty work. But it goes on to say, and he could there do no mighty work, and he marveled because of their unbelief. 
So that means that Jesus, though anointed he was, and remember that's what Luke chapter 4 says, he read to them from Isaiah 61 about how he was anointed by the Holy Ghost to heal the brokenhearted, to bring deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. It identifies very specifically that Jesus was anointed to do the same works in Capernaum and those works were healing and miracles. That's one of the things he refers to them. Jesus seems to be aware of the fact that he's not going to be able to do any mighty work because the people there thought they knew him. It was the town he grew up in. And the people thought they knew him as the, daughter, uh, as the son of Mary and Joseph. And so he said, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that, I, you, you're thinking that you would like me to do the same works of healing and miracles that you've heard that I did in Capernaum. But he said, no prophet is without honor except in his own hometown. So he could there do no mighty work, save he laid his hands on a few sick folks, a few folks with minor ailments, a few folks with not too much wrong with them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. If you compare that to the story we just read in Matthew chapter 9, he's looking for a way to bless them. He's looking for a way to bring healing to their eyes. But what is that way? The spiritual force called faith must be exercised, must be applied for healing miracles to take place. So he asked them, do you believe I'm able to do this? And they said, yes. They said, yes. They said, yes. You remember Mark chapter 5? The woman with the issue of blood? There was a certain woman who had an issue of blood and had spent all of her living on doctors and was nothing better but rather grew worse. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his clothes. For she said, if I may touch but his garment, I shall be whole. And straightway the power, the power of God went into her. And she felt in her body she was healed of that plague. And Jesus stopped, knowing that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who touched me? And the disciples said, Master, thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? But Jesus looked around about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, fell down before him and told him all the truth. And Jesus said, this is Mark chapter 5, verse 34, I believe, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Now, how do we know her faith made her whole? Well, Jesus said that it did. But what was the evidence of her faith being put in operation? When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind, for she said, for she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. The words that you speak is what you believe. What you say is what you believe. What you say, not what you think, what you say is what you believe. 
So Jesus has to get these two blind men to exhibit their faith or to release their faith, to exercise their faith. So he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said, yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes and their eyes were opened. According to your faith, be it done unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. I want you to turn with me now to Matthew chapter 15. Verse 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, let's make sure we've got an accurate picture of what's going on here. Jesus goes out of Judea, out of the territory of the Jews, to a place in Canaan, and he comes upon this Syrophoenician woman. She's not a Jew, therefore the blessings of Abraham do not belong to her. But she's heard of Jesus in his healing ministry. She knows who he is, and so she identifies who she believes him to be. First thing it says is that she cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. When she calls him thou son of David, when she calls him Lord, she's speaking in messianic terms. She's identifying that she believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, we don't know what she's basing that on. We have to believe that she knows something about Jesus ministering, healing, and delivering people from the power of the devil because that's what she comes for. If Jesus was the Messiah but wasn't preaching anything except the forgiveness of sin, she would have no basis to come to him for deliverance for her daughter. So the fact that she does come to him for that deliverance for her daughter identifies that she has some knowledge or some experience with his healing ministry. But notice he didn't answer her it says he answered her not a word and his disciples came and besought him saying send her away for she crieth after us in other words she's annoying us folks when somebody knows something about God their faith may become annoying but they won't give up but Jesus answered and said I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in other words Jesus is saying that his healing mercy and his healing power is directed specifically to the Jewish people of which she does not belong. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, folks, remember what John's agenda is. As identified by Jesus, he came first to the Jews, and then after he came to the Jews, and after the, he was resurrected from the dead, and the gospel began to be preached to the Jewish people, there came a point in time when God sent Paul and Barnabas to the Gentiles. 
And not only that, but there are other times in Acts chapter 10, for example, when Peter went down to Cornelius' house and preached the gospel to them, and they got saved and filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. That was a Gentile group. You remember Peter was called on the carpet back in Jerusalem to identify why he went down to Cornelius' house to begin with because the Jews were forbidden from intermingling and, and uh, eating with the Gentiles. So he was called on the carpet back in Jerusalem to identify why he went down there and to report what took place because he went. So God's purpose, God's plan, is for the gospel not only to go to the Jews, but go to the Gentiles eventually, but not at the first. First it was to go to the Jews as a fulfilling of God's covenant promise to Abraham. But he knew all of the time that it was intended to go to the Jews, and he even told Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, not just a nation, but the father of many nations. So he knows that God's plan is to also provide the gospel benefits to the Gentiles along with the Jews. But there would be no way for her to know that. There would be no way for this woman to know that to be the case. So after he says that he can't help her because she's not a Jew, then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Look at all the opportunities she's having to reject Jesus as the Messiah and to give up on trying to get help for her daughter. Folks, real faith doesn't give up. What some people call this faith, maybe even right confession for a little bit, that people will engage in hoping for the best, that sometimes gives out. But real faith doesn't give up. Real faith doesn't give up. Then said Jesus, or then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, Great is thy faith, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. In other words, he says, according to your faith, be it done unto you. Now, there's a couple of things I want to point out about this story. But I first want to make a, a couple of statements about God's healing power. Healing is spiritual. Let me explain what I mean by that. We know 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 tells us that man is made in the image of God, spirit, soul, and body. Paul said this. He said, I, I beseech you, brethren. I'm starting to quote another scripture now. Anyway, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 says man is spirit, soul, and body. And he calls us calls on us to be preserved blameless under the coming of Jesus. 
there are three realms that man deals with. The physical realm is easiest for us to understand because we're physical creatures. If we inter inter uh, interact in the physical realm, it would be through physical contact. We shake hands, hug necks, that kind of stuff. We're contacting through the physical realm. We're making contact in this physical realm. If we talk, engage in conversation, then we can interact in this social realm. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. It's not social, it's soulish realm. But we can also interact in the spiritual realm. Now normally that would come about as a result, Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they're spirit and life. So interacting in the spiritual realm would probably include the soulish realm, but discussing or interacting around the Word of God. That's why it's important for us to hear the Word of God over and over and over again, because the more we hear, the more that Word becomes a part of our spirit. The deeper it bypasses our soul to impact our spirits. So if we're engaged in conversation or in a church service like this, for example, we're talking and making contact or hopefully making contact in the soulish realm. But since we're talking about the Word of God, it adds the spiritual dynamic to it and has the opportunity. It's not an automatic result or an automatic effect, but it has the opportunity to affect your spirit. Think about how supernatural that is. Me talking about the Word of God has the potential to reach and impact and change you from your spirit out. And everything about God, everything we receive from God comes through faith. So that means everything that we receive from God is because we're interacting with God spirit to spirit. We're the only thing that God created that has that opportunity. But the power of the Word of God is so supernatural. It has the opportunity. It has the potential. If we're listening, if we're paying attention, if we're giving attention to the things that are being said, then that Word has the opportunity to impact you in a spiritual way and impact you in a, in a great way spiritually. It also... It, that means there could be two people sitting together side by side in the service being impacted differently by the word of God based on the attention they're giving to what's being said. And there's this another supernatural element to the word of God that we need to consider as well. And that is God can speak to you differently about the word of God than I may be even intending to speak. The power of God's word is awesome. And as such, God's word can be the answer for you. No matter what your situation is. No matter what you need. I've had people come to me after the service and say, Pastor Mike, when you said such and such, it just changed me. Changed my life. Well, I know for a certain fact that I didn't say such and such. What does that mean? 
That means they were hearing what God was speaking to them and not what I said. Another thing about this story. And I'm going to read to you from Isaiah, 50, uh, Isaiah 43 as I make mention of this fact. The next point. Isaiah 43 verse 25. God said, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgression for mine own sake that I will not remember thy sin. God doesn't remember your sins for his sake. We think it's for our sake. But it's for his sake. I, even I, the one that blotteth out thy transgressions, will not remember thy sins. For my own sake, will not remember thy sins. Verse 26 goes on to say, Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. This is what the Syrophoenician woman does. Whether she knows about these scriptures or not, we don't know. Whether she intends to operate on these scriptures seems unlikely. If that was what her intent was, then why wouldn't she have first come to Jesus saying, Jesus, Isaiah 45, 43, verse 25 says that you won't remember my sins, and then you told me to put you in remembrance. But that's not what she said. That's not what she acted on. So here she's doing the word, not even knowing that the word says that, probably. So what does she do? She pleads her case. She first comes to Jesus and calls him the Messiah. And Jesus doesn't answer her. Then her disciples, his disciples get involved and try to get rid of her. But she won't leave. And Jesus simply says, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I think Jesus is telling her, you might as well go away. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. If she's pleading her case, what's she pleading it on? Certainly not a birthright. Certainly not because she's eligible for the blessings of Abraham. What's she arguing her case on? The mercy of God. It's the first thing she said. Have mercy on me, O, o Lord, thou son of David. Somehow or another, she is convinced that the mercy of God, the same mercy of God that Jesus is ministering to the Jews with and bringing healing and miracles to them would work for her. Now, folks, that's a pretty supernatural thing that's taking place. We know that she doesn't have salvation. We know that she's not an heir of salvation in any way whatsoever. And so there would be no way that we could legitimately expect her to listen to the inward witness or follow the inward witness or listen to the voice of God on the inside of her. The voice of God is not inside of her. And so what in the world takes place in this woman's life 
that causes her to act on scripture she doesn't know is there and to claim a right to the healing power of God. I wish I had that answer. I don't know what it was that caused it, but we can certainly see it in evidence. So he says, I'm not sent to the Jews. I'm only sent to the Jews. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not beat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. He still refuses her. And he gives her a reason. Now he's pleading his case. You're not a Jew. Your daughter may be grievously vexed with the devil. You may rightly believe that I'm the Messiah. But that doesn't qualify you for the results you want. But she said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Folks, notice what Jesus did to bring about her result. He simply said, be it unto you according to your faith. Jesus did not go into a special time of prayer where he transversed time and space or time and distance to bring about his, her daughter's recovery or deliverance. He simply took sides with her this time and every other interaction that they had had up to this point was her on one side and him on the other. But she put him in remembrance, not knowing she was putting him in remembrance. But she's pleading her case. I'm not a Jew, but you're merciful. I may be a dog as far as the Jews are concerned, but the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Finally, Jesus simply joins sides with her and says, according to your faith, be it unto you. That's all it took. All it takes is getting Jesus on your side. How do we get Jesus on our side? There's only one way for that. That's the word of God. And every time Jesus asks people something, he's asking them what they believe. He's leading them to the thing that, is, that becomes their victory. And that is the expression of faith. It's a confession of their faith in God's word. Woman with issue of blood. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind. For she said, most translations say she began to say, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Now, there's other people in that crowd, a multitude of people in that crowd that are jostling against him, reaching out and trying to touch him. 
When Jesus said, who touched me? The disciples are flabbergasted. What do you mean, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. That's why we're having trouble making it through the crowds, because everybody's touching you. But one person and one person only touched him in faith. And that one person, only that one person, through the faith that she exercised, through the words that she spoke, and the action that she took, only one person drew from the power of God. I'd be like a multitude of people at church, but only one person standing in faith. Smith Wilberforce said that God will pass over a million people to get to one person standing in faith. So Jesus said to this woman, the Syrophoenician woman, Woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Well, is that how all healing works? No, not all. It's how the majority of healing works. Psalm 107 verse 20 says, He sent his word and healed them. And delivered them from their destructions. Most healings come through the operation of faith. On the part of the individual. Exercised toward God. By the confession of his word. But there are other things. And other ways that healing can manifest it too. Acts chapter 3 tells us about how healing was manifested. In the days of the early church. They're already getting people healed. They're already having certain miracles. But there's a crippled man at the beautiful gate of the temple that God initiates a healing miracle for. He's simply standing, uh, sitting there on the, at the gate. Apparently he's there at, at the same place all the time because everybody knew him. And he's there asking for alms. He's asking for money. But as Peter and John are going into the gate... And the crippled man requesting money from them. The Holy Ghost moves. And at first you couldn't tell it was the Holy Ghost. It certainly in faith on the part of the individual. He's not even there for healing. He's there for money. He doesn't request healing from the disciples. He requests money. Peter looks on him and says, look on us. What we have, give I thee. Such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Now why does God do that? We know that Jesus said the works he did, they would do also. The disciples would do and the church would do. And they're already getting people healed, at least on some small scale. But the same God that the Syrophoenician woman knew was merciful is still merciful.
and he wants to bring healing to this individual. Some people might be cynical about it and say, well, he just wants to get the word of uh, the name of Jesus out. He just wants a miracle, a notable miracle to take place for the benefit of the church, to advertise the church and approve of what they're doing. And that all could be well and good, but it wouldn't require this man. But here's a man that's over 40 years old, crippled from his birth, and the mercy of God explodes on the situation. Such as I have, give I thee, Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. He reached out and took him by the hand, and immediately he leaped and walked and held on to him going into the temple. He's not going to turn these guys loose. Now, I don't know if there was something else he wanted from him because he's already healed. But he holds on to Peter and John. People come running up to find out what's going on. Everybody knows this guy. He's there every day. Been there day after day after day for probably years. Peter stops and says, why look ye on us? As if by our own power or our own holiness we had done this thing. Peter says, identifies very specifically that it wasn't the power they had as apostles that healed him. It wasn't some special place they had with God that caused his healing to come about. Instead, he says it was faith of the name of Jesus, through faith in his name, that this man stands before you whole. But if it wasn't faith on the part of the individual, whose faith was it? Apparently, there's a manifestation of the gift of faith or special faith in operation. Here's something, a manifestation of the Spirit that's initiated by God, not prayed for by Peter, not asked for by John, but initiated by the Holy Ghost himself. Here's how God works, folks. Not only does he honor faith on the part of the individual, but in other situations when necessary, he manifests himself as in this case with special faith, specific faith in God's word to perform a specific work, bring about a certain miraculous result. And this man was brought from destruction, no future, to a redeemed life, a life redeemed from destruction, and forever being proof of the mercy of God and his miracle working power. That's the God we serve. That's the God we're trusting in for this year of jubilee for us. Let's just lift our hands and worship him for a few moments. Father, we magnify your holy name. Holy Spirit, we thank you for manifesting yourself. We thank you for revealing the mercy of our Father, the loving kindness that he has toward us, that he has toward all men. 
We worship you, Father. And just as the Syrophoenician woman said to Jesus, Lord, help us. We say, Lord, help us. We have in and of ourselves no power to heal even the smallest situation, the smallest condition. But we know from your word that we have the power of God within us. Manifest your power on behalf of the sick, Lord. Manifest your power to redeem lives from destruction. We look to you, Lord, to honor your word, for you are faithful. You are faithful to watch over your word to perform. You are faithful to bring to pass that which we cannot see. believe you father the miracles of healing in Jesus name we love you father we declare your goodness we plead our case Jesus said the works that he did we would do also and even greater works than these shall we do because he went to you. Bring it to pass, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's make our confession again. This is our year of Jubilee. We expect manifestations of the Holy Ghost in power. We believe for financial miracles and miracles of healing. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, folks.